Spread the Fire fam, welcome back to SMWX. And today I'm really excited to bring you a two-part interview with Mayor Lebohang Peko, one of South Africa's most exciting and incisive public intellectuals from economics to history to current affairs. She's really one of the best minds that we have analyzing social problems. So whether you're watching part one or part two, make sure you check the other parts and like, share, subscribe. Thank you for taking us to beyond 20,000 subscribers. Let's get into it. Ayeye. Spread the fire. Welcome back to SMWX. And today I'm extremely excited to bring you another conversation with one of South Africa's premier public intellectuals, someone who thinks across the humanities and economics and history and is here to bring her considerable insights to you, the viewers of this channel. It's Lebohan Peko. We're so very glad to have you on SMWX. Me Peko, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much, Susan. Appreciate it. You've been uh, requested many times on social media, uh, so I feel like I'm finally delivering for, for our viewers today as a guest. That could help. Thank you. Pleasure. And there's, there's a lot going on as usual in our, in our wonderful and frustrating country. And I wanted to start on this question of the student protests as a window into perhaps a deeper crisis that exists in South Africa today. To what extent do you do you think that these student protests are an isolated event or maybe symptomatic of a broader problem of historical inequality? Mm. Yeah, great question and difficult to respond to fully without becoming mm. quite historical mm. by May. So I think- Feel free by the really way, there are no time limits. Thank you. So I think the first is um, drawing back to social inclusion, educational inclusion, and who is and isn't entitled. Um, it's a basic matrix of entitlements, capabilities that we have used in this country since 1994. And I'll go back further in a second. And unfortunately, it feeds into the notion that education is not a public good, that the education is something, it's a privilege. It's something that is only, you know, a few people are entitled to. And we see this in the free structure. Um, and I think the policing of black knowledge, the policing of young people, um, and of course, the, the policing of black poverty and, and poverty shaming without a really an understanding and an appreciation that the majority of African people in this country have not been able to build the sort of um, intergenerational capital to, to, to access the, the, you know, to access universities, to even access so-called good schools, which is a whole other conversation. And that the context of this, of course, is quite, quite deliberate and structural, as you rightly say. So it's really linked to the notion that African people's role and African people's minds 
were only for the for the for the service of white capital primarily, um, and and that was only very limited to a few professions, and that was really linked to a kind of a social engineering, an African an apartheid related colonial social engineering in in common with many other settler colonies by the way the portuguese did it as we know the french did it as we know where a few people were able to assimilate and to to be promoted into quasi whiteness or adjacent whiteness um, but that the majority were really to know their place as workers as maids as minors and so forth and that this was actually then structurally you know the structural inhibitions also included the geography of where institutions of higher learning were so the only the only university that we had um, not only for South Africa but for the region at some stage was the University of Fort Hare which holds a particular and very special place so our presence in other institutions is still seen as an encumbrance as invasive and as deeply deeply unsettling to the imagination of whiteness and as we know whiteness as an imagination um, imperialism as a white as an imagination doesn't actually require the presence of white people to thrive right it can thrive all on its own uh, yeah, it kind of runs on remote control so that this, mm -hmm. so the people the people at Rhodes um, the pe black people at Vitz uh, black people at Stelis and so on still seen as interlopers um, and this is why you know we had our universities and I think the only parallel that I can think of is you know historically black universities in the US and our so-called Bush universities right um, and you know your turf and, 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 and Vista whatever it used to call used to be called Vista and even the, you know the, the, the geography of those universities you know I go now even to some of the the the, 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 the now rationalized forms of those universities because I like to invest a lot of time in those spaces I mean they look yeah. like glorified high schools the libraries are shocking um, the, the lighting is, is dodgy, the mm. books are, you know, I've got more books in my in my little cupboard here than a whole university library, Sizwe. So there's a there's a there's a psychological exclusion, there's a historic exclusion, there's a financial exclusion, and of course there's an ideological exclusion before then we even get to the notion of the economics of going to universities, who does and doesn't belong, um, who can and cannot go, uh, and that this is linked, of course, with the new liberal market market um market led led idea that um uh, and of, of class bias right of class engineering and that it's, it's trying to build a new form and, and trying to consolidate the class project with the middle class and the elite class project by enabling a few clever duckies a few clever blacks the chosen few to access these 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 um, corridors of learning, as we, as 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 people used to say back in the day, uh, and and to ensure that others are left in an aspirational state of of constant longing. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think that's that's so key to to situate this because I think we we constantly see these conflagrations and uh, and fail to trace them back to even their immediate historical roots. So, I think there's there's so much that I'd love to explore in what you say there but but the one thing that you you bring me to to reflect on is that post 94 it seems as though inclusion has become deracialized and that has led people to assume that exclusion is also deracialized but but it's not the same people are excluded poor black women disproportionately and so we've 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 opened the doors of inclusion or at least spaces of privilege we've deracialized those spaces but we haven't 
deracialized the spaces outside those spaces and it kind of creates this ability for people who want to pursue a conservative agenda to say but look it's it's deracialized when exclusion is still racialized or still gendered etc so and 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 the notion of course of um what a liberatory agenda looks like. So that's the difference mm. between having, I think, a democratic agenda and, and having a liberatory one. So democracy is easy, constitutions are easy. And you know, we've got, if, if we could eat constitutions and this so-called best constitution in the world, we wouldn't even be having the kind of social, the constant social insurrections that we see in this country, right? If the Bill mm. of Rights, in fact, did deliver on those rights in ways that are substantive um, in a day-to-day -day way, um, if people did have enough to eat, if African people and black bodies were valued with the sorts of housing, um, water, sanitation, and so forth, that is due to all of us as human beings, then we wouldn't be having these sorts of conversations. And it's almost as though, if not, if uh, maybe let me be definitive and say it's not almost as though it is the fact it is it is situational that um, a lot of the problem and a lot of the, the, the discomforts of, um, of of universities, um, as you rightly say, stem from a different a disproportionate value of um, of African lives and African bodies and black bodies, and it also stems from this notion that in fact we are not entirely human um, and that we are still in fact we should we, sh we need to earn our way into respectability and earn our way into compliance and I think that there's a very compliant state bullying that has been taking place trying to keep people um, muzzled slightly just enough to stop from you know present prevent complete insurrection which mm. I think is bubbling under this is bubbling under the the, 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 the surface quite quite you know, quite, quite tangibly, quite visibly, mm -hmm. and has been for a really long time, um, but mm -hmm. not enough to really deal with the structural issues that need to take place. So Fees Must Fall, I think, um, has become a metaphor for the many structural def deficiencies and deficits oh. of um, not only intergenerational and interhistorical moments um, before 1994, but also mm -hmm. the ones that, that, that lead to the kind of um, very vapid and slightly aloof form of governance that this that this state has towards its citizens and its people and i say that as pejoratively as i as 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 it conveys because this notion of our people is very much this it also is linked to the notion of the state being some kind of a father christmas Easter bunny and almost giving doing these things as a favor. So we, why do you have to have a call a press conference when you've built a house? You're supposed to. Why do you call a, a press conference because the thousandth tap in a particular township has been erected and there's Ugogosoko there to switch on a tap? I mean, this is this whole notion of um, not only infantilizing um, black people in this country, but it's also the notion of the state be behaving almost as though it's a generous benefactor. A feudal relationship, rather than the, the, um, a, a, an instrument, a transaction of power and responsibility between the state and people. So as a result of all of that, and I think as a result of all of this Father Christmasing of public policy and state resources and state funds, it also think has this, there's this dissonance. And I think there's a disdain, I think, from the state towards people. And that's kind of a historical disdain. And, it, and I think it comes from mm. the people who are originally part of liberation movements, not only in South Africa, but across the continent, right? So 
typically mission-led, um, or in the case of, of West Africa, um, deeply Quranic, deeply, you know, leadership of, 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 of different religious orders, but deeply um, um, anglicized um, and, and, and deeply linked to mission and Christianized education, often taken away from the, from the context of the people, right? So often educated across, um, out of the continent, for example, the first six uh, presidents of the, the French belt, you know, that's uh, mm. Guinea, Mali, Senegal, uh, Cote d'Ivoire, Burkina Faso, and there's another one that I'm forgetting, but all of them went to the same school, the same quite elite school on the island of Gori. That to me cannot be coincidental, kind of like their version mm. of a Model C school, right? Yeah, very French, yeah. very, wow. you know, um, you know, promoting this idea of being a French citizen abroad, mm -hmm. right? And then all of them, of course, go off to the Sorbonne or wherever in Paris um, and so forth. Mm -hmm. And is that kind of be a coincidence? You know, President Nyerere was sent, went off to Scotland. Um, you know, of course, uh, President Nkrumah went off to the States and so on and so forth. The good news of that, of course, is that they, then the, there is this kind of pan-African um, interlinkages that take place between uh, an Nkrumah and a Du Bois. But I do think that that strange dislocation that nearly all of our liberation leaders on this con the men to be specific most of the men and a lot of the women the elite elitism was seen as the uh, you know leadership was seen as the, pur the purview of leadership which is why even speaking english was the was seen or french in the case of the of french west french west africa was seen as a sign of leadership i mean how do i go to um a Sutu community for example and yet i have a translator what, what what am i conveying other than that i feel that i am better than the people around me so it's this kind of disdainful top-down dis distance and dissonance between leadership and black people in this country, which I think is um, kind of almost proves what I was saying earlier on, that you don't need white supremacist colonialism in physical form for their, for their bidding and for their agenda and for their imagination to continue. When, when so, so much of, of what you say makes me think of the bankruptcy of well, two things actually. The one is our vision of, of I don't know if it would be called rehabilitation or just all out punishment, which is what it really is in, in, in South Africa. And, you know, I think we've, we've not thought enough about how we have reproduced patterns of colonial and apartheid punishment in the present. And when I look at, um, only the most recent of many thousands of people by now killed by the police. It does seem as though the ANC government in some ways has fallen into this trap of failing to reimagine what a, what a, a state in this context should be and just using its force to suppress uh, lethally if necessary any form of in challenge to its to to its legitimacy, and it feels like you know it's almost become farcical how often uh, this is now happening. And in fact, I mean the the statistics upon statistics about how South African police have actually killed more people per capita than anywhere in the world. Um, I know that the colleagues in the U.S. 
disputes that. I mean, I, and I know that there are different indices that we can mm -hmm. use, but we have one of the most violent police forces in the world. I mean, I personally have a, literally a visceral reaction uh, when I see the cops. It's like, oh Lord, mm -hmm. you know, I'm driving along, listening to my music, listening to my jazz. It's like, okay, what, what do you want now? You know, what, what, mm -hmm. what now, basically? <laughs> And, and, and it's not a good feeling. Um, and, and, and I think that there's also a sense in which, again, it, it, it illustrates a couple of things that, as you very rightly say, Sizwe, that the state hasn't managed to imagine itself away from the colonial construct of violence against black bodies that's the one thing and i think that's why sometimes guys in the you know guys, guys in the diaspora find it hard to conceive of how a black government an african-led government at least on the surface of it can as well you know meet such such, such violence against other black bodies like how can americana happen um post-1994 how can andreas tatani happen post-1994 and the many others you know the litany of many others um, and the ones who are not only shot you know who not not only killed by open fire but by silent neglect as well you know by structural and, and, and systematic neglect whether it's in hospitals um, and, and so on and so forth and and the thing as well the odd thing about this is that it keeps happening but I, and, and I think the thing that worries me um, is that we keep we become inured to it I feel as though there's almost this sighing resignation to it of okay this is how it is and that yes we'll get cheesed off we'll get up on twitter and then occasionally as we are seeing the last couple of weeks um across the country uh with with young people who are saying that you know we can't do this nonsense not a, not now really we've had a difficult year our parents have lost their jobs those who are even have access to funding in the first place, access to work in the first place. In the meantime, 5 billion Rand was taken off of the state fiscus from NASFAS. I mean, yeah, who does that? Like who, who, who does that? Who, do, who, do, who removes funding right now? Uh, and then, you know, what do we expect? You know, what, 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 do, what do institutions expect? A bunch of flowers from, from, from these from young people standing <laughs> ovation? I mean, what, what do you want from people, right? Um, and how, how often can you be brutalized um, cognitively, um, brutalized financially, brutalized psychosocially? And remember that, of course, for a lot of young people and for whole communities, this is that this one child is a ticket out for a whole household, if not a whole community. So if they're not in school, it means that that social insurance and that social that social welfareism that they're hoping will emerge if this young person comes out of um, university. And I mean, the rate of exclusion makes it a big if, if they get a job within a year of graduation. And again, the rate of unemployed graduates makes that another big if. And if their degree or their qualification is still even useful by the time they've received the job. And I mean, it breaks my heart every single year where young people come out bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and they get that tassel and you know, you tap them on their head. And it's like, you know, and you know that maybe one out of two of them are not even within a year, two years, three years, five years. I mean, I get people who I taught 10 years ago who have mm. never ever worked this way. It mm. breaks my heart. Mm. Mm. Sure, uh, that's that's so, I, I just what you say also about the, the many millions actually who who have suffered the under silent neglect and structural neglect in addition to the violence is something we don't think about and of course also takes us back to a painful history of 
you know, millions again suffering, maybe in silence, being confined to these open air spaces for for black people. Um, and that for me is just the most difficult thing to reckon with when, when I meditate on apartheid as a as an idea is it's just the sheer scale of the social control you know i understand that many tens of thousands were directly murdered but but just the millions and it and still today we, we have the the system and situation where millions are, are are still confined and are still um effectively unable to emerge and the, the the solution I'm starting to, to to wonder is is quite, and this is the second bankruptcy actually is the solution is this ideology of non-racialism, which I'm very confused. I'm very confused about. You know, I, I just think maybe it may have had a noble uh, a noble moment you know, back in the 1980s or something, even that is probably in dispute. But it seems to me this idea of non-racialism has now been co-opted by, quite frankly, the DA, the Institute of Race Relations, people who want to use the N-word and then pretend that they are, um, you know, entitled to do so because of non-racialism. And a conception of racial justice has been lost, it seems to me. Um, in this whole notion of non-racialism.